It is uh, an honor to be asked to speak. I was uh, telling Daniel earlier, it's like I'm very comfortable in my own, well, to some degree I'm comfortable in my own pulpit. I'm always bemoaning the lack of gifts that I have, uh, but I'm comfortable in my own pulpit. I don't get outside of it. The last time I've spoken outside of my own pulpit was about four years ago, and it was a conference on suffering where I was privileged to speak. So, um, yeah, it is, uh, it is an honor to be here, and uh, quite a task to follow the guys that have gone before me. It reminds me, and I, I don't remember if it was said of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think it was, where one of the biographers said he was like a, a jetliner, and starting kind of slow, gaining speed, and just taking off. And I felt that way, listening to our speakers. It's like they just got better and better and better as they went on. And uh, that's uh, tough to follow. But we preach the same word. We worship the same Christ. Um, I am more comfortable here just from the standpoint that this church is not unlike ours uh, in historicity, in structure, in size. Um, And there have been some during the summer, some Sundays, where we have not had many more than this upstairs as far as the adults. Uh, So I wanted to sort of treat this and act almost like I'm in my own pulpit. So I'm going to ask you, as I normally do at Christ Church, to stand for the reading of God's word. And I just want to read the verses that we've covered, 9, 10, 11, and then the verse that I hope to cover, verse 12. But you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you were those who had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, beloved I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Then verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the unbelievers so that in whatever they accuse you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God in the day of visitation. And so, Lord, we are grateful as we have heard so much said about your grace and your mercy. We have been, as it's been said by the Puritans of the past, we have been bemercied. Lord, we are sheep, every one of us, so in need of that grace and mercy and sometimes so oblivious to how great that grace, how deep that mercy has been and continues to be in our lives. Forgive us for our hardness of heart. We thank you for the truth of your word and pray, I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit will lead me as I seek to handle accurately the word of truth to the glory of our triune God, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In his book, Therefore Stand, which was written at the end of World War II, The author, Wilbur Smith, observes that the world, with few exceptions, has always opposed Christ and his followers. 
Smith writes this, at first, one would think that a religion which exalts and seeks to follow the only perfect and righteous man who has ever lived on this earth, who never harmed anyone, whose words delivered from superstition and fear, those whose works redeemed from pain and demons and death and hunger, whose life was as a great shaft of light shot into the murky darkness of the Roman world in that sensual and skeptic century, who died because he loved us and who always sought to bring men into communion with God to bestow upon them eternal life and hope in heaven. One would have thought that such a character and the religion which his life and work on earth established would have been welcomed with open arms the first moment it was announced and would by its very message the good works which flowed from it and the hope which it established never know opposition or attack or denunciation except from the demons of hell and Satan, who was a liar and murderer from the beginning. But such has not been true throughout history. In fact, the New Testament itself, from the records of the birth of our Lord down to the end of St. John's vision of the era of anarchy and persecution to come, testifies in the most startling way to the fact that Christ himself was most viciously and constantly attacked that his apostles suffered the same opposition, and that it was predicted by these very apostles that Christianity would continue to suffer down to the end of this age. So as John writes in chapter 3 of his first epistle, do not be surprised when the world hates you. And no doubt reflecting on the words of Jesus in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. We're not out to win a popularity contest. The world is going to be critical of those that uphold the truth of Jesus Christ. But that's not to say that at times the attacks by the world against the church have been unfounded. At times they've been warranted. That's been true throughout church history and even today. I was a relatively new Christian in the 1980s when the televangelist scandal broke, revealing egregious behavior by some so-called Christian leaders whose real crime was the corrupt theology they held that was in some sixth sense foundational to their bad behavior. But even good men with good ministries are subject to falling into sin for disgracing the name of Jesus Christ. But our mandate, as we see in this passage, as we see it reflected by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, is to prove, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. That is the mandate for the church at large, not to elicit scandal because of our sins, but to be the light of Jesus Christ to the world. And how much more so, if it's true of the church at large, it's true of those of us that serve in the leadership capacities, elders, deacons within the local church. So we are exhorted there in Philippians, as we are in this passage, to lead lives that are above reproach. Lives of Christ-likeness, so that those who despise the message of the cross have no dirt to spread upon the face of the cross because of failure in our lives. So we're to live 
live exemplary lives. Of course, that's no guarantee that we won't be persecuted, we'll be hated, we've talked about that. But if we're going to be slandered by the world, it ought to be due to our marriage to truth, to the gospel, and not because of our sin. Do not marvel if the world hates you. Expect it. Rejoice, your reward in heaven is great. We will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. You desire to live a godly life, you're going to be persecuted. Sometimes that brings about the ultimate price, doesn't it, around the world? I'm told that upwards of 100,000 professed believers in Jesus Christ give their lives each year for the sake of the gospel. 100,000. Within the scope of the time that I have to give this message, perhaps 5, 10, 15 Christians will have given their lives for the faith. Indeed, the church is watered by the blood of the saints. In this country, that's not something, martyrdom, that we face. Not yet. And for the most part, it wasn't something Peter's readers faced, though they would before long. First Peter was probably written around AD 62, 63, before the great fire of Rome in AD 64, which under Nero brought about great persecution upon the church including the death of Christians. For us here, the question isn't how can we stand the test of martyrdom? It may come to that. But the question for us at this time is how can we live in the midst of a hostile world that disdains all that is Christ? This passage answers that question. My verse is in contrast to verse 11 especially, that uh, Alan Dunn handled so well. And I want you to look at verse 11 and look at verse 12, and we see here there's a negative, verse 11, followed by a positive, verse 12. Another way we can look at it, 11, that verse looks inward, 12 looks outward. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. That's That's sort of negatively, looking inward, abstain, stop. The positive side, verse 12, the outward expression is keep your behavior excellent among the unbelievers so that in whatever they accuse you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God in the day of visitation. Well, the whole passage stands together, of course. We've seen that. But I especially see a close relationship between verse 11 and 12. Well, my title is From Darkness to Light, Living Christ in a Hostile World. My main idea is that our witness is to radiate God's excellence in a dark world. Our witness is to radiate God's excellence in a dark world. And that goes back to verse 9 that we kicked off with. Kenny Montano doing such a great job there. Verse 9, you are an elect race a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is who you are, a people for God's own possession, so that, purpose, you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaiming his excellencies. We are to, our witness, radiate God's excellence in a dark world. 
As it relates to that witness, I have four points that flow from verse 12. There's the scope of our witness. There's the slander of our witness, more of an objective generative idea, slander against our witness. There's the substance of our witness and the splendor of our witness. The scope, slander, substance, and splendor of our witness as we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. So that first point, the scope of our witness. The scope of our witness is the world. Verse 12, keep your behavior excellent, Peter says. If you stop there, that brings us back to verse 11. As aliens and strangers in the world, we forsake fleshly lusts that wage war against our souls, that also tarnish our witness to the world. And the fact that we are aliens, the fact that we are strangers, implies that we're in a foreign land. What's that foreign land? It's the world. The scope of our witness, we are pilgrims among pagans. The nature of our witness is that it is to be good, it is to be kalos, it is to be excellent. Keep your behavior excellent. And that phrase bookends the end of the verse, good works. Those ideas complement one another. And again, as I said, we have the adjective kalos. It refers to that which is good in the sense of excellent or noble or praiseworthy. And that's to describe our conduct. That's to describe our behavior. Noble, praiseworthy, excellent. Excellence in behavior is foundational to excellence in ministry. Our witness is to radiate God's excellence in a dark world. It ought to illuminate it. It ought to radiate it, not eclipse it. We show forth Christ. We don't obscure Christ. And so the mandate, we are to stand sentry over our lives. We need to keep up our guard Military analogy, we need to be George Patton, not Beetle Bailey. We need to be Douglas MacArthur, not Gomer Pyle. We need to stand sentry. We need to be alert, especially as leaders, walking our lives and our ministries by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Brethren, when we let down our guard, we're like Samson in the arms of Delilah, The locks of our strength are cut off. We cease to maintain the spiritual separation from the world and from the flesh of which the Nazarite vow was a type. The scope of our witness, the world, keep your behavior excellent where? Among the unbelievers, among the pagans. I prefer to translate the Greek noun ethnos. Here it's a plural, but I I prefer to translate it as unbelievers or pagans. It's a dative of sphere. Most of the time we see it rendered Gentiles. But in this context, it's referring to the rank and file of mankind. Those who are outside of the church could also be translated nations. But I like the idea of unbelievers. One Greek scholar agrees with me and says this, this is not to the Gentiles as in contrast to the Jews, but to the unsaved world the world of people without Christ. This is the sphere of our witness. This is where we live. We live in the world. I have as my email signature line, a grieving pilgrim on a journey to the celestial city. A grieving pilgrim. I'm grieving the loss 
of my daughter who was called home in 2016 after she and I were hit by a drunk driver while going to get a Christmas tree on Christmas Eve of 2015. I'm grieving, I'm broken, but I'm a pilgrim. I'm passing through this world. We're aliens, but we're on a journey. We're not just static. No, we're moving. We have a destination, and that's the celestial city, the new Jerusalem. But we're working our way through this world. That's the scope of our witness. Number two, we see the slander of our witness, false accusation. Keep, again, verse 12, your behavior excellent among the unbelievers so that whatever or in whatever they accuse you as evildoers. Stop there. There's an assumption here. The assumption is that we're being accused of something of which we're not guilty. We're being accused of being the evildoers. The contextual evidence that there's no guilt in that regard, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, the world is amazed that we don't run into the same dissipation circles that they run in. No, we're different, but we're falsely accused. Listen, how does this apply? Godless people have their own set of values, right? We hear that all the time. American values include love, tolerance, choice. These are our values, and I'm going to argue that values and ethics are different. Values are whatever a given set of people or a culture holds to and wants to hold up as being the standard, where ethics ought to have an ontological source, an absolute behind them. But we don't follow the values of the world. Therefore, we're breaking their rules. Therefore, ergo, we are evildoers. We don't live according to their rules. So we get labeled with things like bigoted, intolerant, homophobic. Jacob here faces that. Jacob's a gifted preacher and evangelist. He goes out and does that which I would face with great fear and trepidation, and that is out preaching in front of abortion clinics. Drag queen story hours. And he goes out and he preaches the gospel. And he brought his teenage boys with him at a drag queen story hour in a library. And he was preaching the gospel there. And somebody called Child Protective Services on Jacob for taking his kids and preaching at a drag queen story hour. Now, is that upside down or what? Yeah, the whole whole event was geared for children, but because Jacob is preaching the unadulterated, absolute word of God, the thought is, well, he's being abusive. He's also in the midst of a lawsuit He encouraged and spoke at his local school board to remove disgusting pornographic books from the school library. They did. And then the teacher's union and a teacher and the librarian at the school threatened to sue the school if they didn't reinstate the books. And so they caved and reinstated the books. And now Jacob is looking at other 
legal means. And so you're called transphobic, right? Homophobic, bigoted, narrow-minded. You're called an evildoer. And we who would do the same thing or maintain the same standards are called evildoers. I coined a word. I thought, well, Paul does it a lot. I could do it. And my word is alethophobia. It's a compound of the word for truth, the Greek word for truth, aletheia, and then phobos, fear, alethophobia. This is my standard response to anyone who calls me homophobic, transphobic. I say, well, you're alethophobic. Well, what's that? It's the fear of, the rejection of, the disdain of truth, especially, particularly absolute truth. Feel free to use that. Somebody calls you homophobic, say, well, you're just alethophobic. When you take a stand on absolute truth, you will be criticized for it in a non-absolute culture. Because if the Bible is not absolutely true, nothing is absolutely wrong. And the message of the cross is foolishness to the world. But to we who are being saved, it is the power of God. Our creed is Christ. The world's creed is quite different. Reed mentioned it earlier, and I was going to bring it up. Theo Hobson describes the three marks of a cultural revolution. What was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned. And then those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. That's the third mark. Is it any surprise that when you take your stand on absolute truth, you will be labeled with words like bigot, phobic, narrow-minded, a danger to society. Isaiah 5.20, the light is called darkness and the darkness light. So we are the ones, according to the world, who end up being called evil doers. The same accusation was leveled against Jesus in John 18.30, where the same word, kakapoyas, evildoer is used. In Acts chapter 28, verse 22, Luke records that Christianity was considered by the world a sect that was everywhere spoken against. You know it, in the early Roman Empire, Christianity was deemed criminal. Christians were accused of being cannibals because of the Lord's Supper. They were accused of participating in incest because they called each other brother and sister. They had agape or love feasts, which the Romans claimed were drunken orgies. They were accused of atheism because they didn't believe in all the gods, but only one. They were accused of treason because they wouldn't bow to Caesar and offer up incense to Caesar. Called evil doers. We can turn the clock ahead to the 20th century. On March 6th of 1927, British philosopher Bertrand Russell delivered his famous essay to the National Secular Society in London, that essay entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And in this essay, Russell accuses Christians and the church of evil. And he writes this, There are a great many ways in which, at the present moment, the church, by its insistence upon What it chooses to call morality inflicts upon all sorts of people undeserved and unnecessary suffering. And of course, as we know, 
It is in its major part an opponent still of progress and improvement in all the ways that diminish suffering in the world because it has chosen to label as morality a certain narrow sense of rules of conduct which have nothing to do with human happiness. In its conclusion, religion is based, I think, primarily, mainly upon fear. It is partly the terror of the unknown and partly of, as I have said, the wish to feel that you have a kind of elder brother who will stand by you in all your troubles and disputes. A good world needs knowledge and kindliness and courage. It does not need a regretful hankering after the past or a fettering of the free intelligence by the words uttered long ago by ignorant men. It's the world we live in. Keep your behavior excellent among the unbelievers so that in whatever they accuse you as evildoers, they will see your good works and be put to shame. We need to be prepared, as Peter writes in chapter 3, same sort of thought, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense and apologia to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And note this, verse 16, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And part of that apologia or defense is defending our worldview as the only one that is completely rational and defensible. And that obviously includes the gospel. 2 Corinthians 10.5, one of my favorite verses, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's being salt. That's being light. So the scope of our witness, our first point, the world, the slander of our witness, false accusation, When Plato was told that a certain man was slandering him and accusing him of things he did not do, his response was, I will live in such a way that no one will believe what they say. So our witness is to radiate God's excellence in a dark world. Yes, we will still be slandered. We will be called evildoers. But listen, the world knows the difference between calling us homophobic, bigoted, narrow-minded because we ground ourselves on immutable truth and then calling us hypocrites because some pastor is having an adulterous affair with his secretary or another man's wife or whatever. The world knows the difference. Third, the substance of our witness, and that's living Christ. Living Christ. Christ living in us, our demonstrating who he is with our lives. Again, verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the unbelievers so that in whatever they accuse you as evildoers, they may see your good works. That last part, they may see your good works. Again, we see the adjective kalos, beautiful, good, excellent, same word used at the beginning of the verse. Here it modifies ergon, works or deeds. 
According to uh, New Testament commentator Michaels, the picture is one of close examination, close scrutiny. As he writes, observation that leads the observer to a change of mind. They're going to see your good deeds. They're going to see your good works. As I like to put it, they're going to see that you live Christ. You don't only proclaim Christ, you live Christ. I know I sometimes stumble over that idea of good works, just that phrase. It sounds so religious, so dutiful, duties, things we do, outward religious things. But of course, that phrase is used elsewhere in the New Testament, several places. Ephesians 2.10, we're familiar with that. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. 1 Timothy 6.18, we're to be rich in good works. And that's not just the outward things we do. It includes all that we do, all of our lives. We see throughout 1 Peter, certain behaviors that fall into that category of good works. I just read through 1 Peter the other day, and I just wrote some down. This is just a partial list. Our good works include a living hope and joy in the riches of salvation, chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Joy in our lives, that we're not pickled Christians, but we have something different that sustains us in trials and suffering and gives us meaning and hope. It's enduring suffering, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. It's to have minds girded for action, chapter 1, verse 13. It's holiness or Christ-likeness, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It's living a life of reverence, It's fearing the Lord, chapter 1, verse 17. It's a fervent, sincere love for the brethren, chapter 1, verse 22, chapter 4, verse 8. It's to put aside things like malice, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, chapter 2, verse 1. It's to hunger for the word of God, Lagakon, chapter 2, verse 2. It's to be a spiritual priest offering up spiritual sacrifices, chapter 2, verse 5. It's to submit to kings and those in authority, chapter 2, verse 13. It's to follow the example of Christ, chapter 2, verse 21. It's to honor marriage, God's way, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It's to be peaceful, sympathetic, and kind, chapter 3, verse 8. It's to suffer for the sake of righteousness, chapter 3, verse 14. It's to be a hospitable servant, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. It's to rejoice in being slandered for the sake of Christ. Chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. It's to walk in humility. Chapter 5, verse 6. These are the excellent behaviors. These are the good works that are to adorn our lives. Our witness is to radiate God's excellence in a dark world. Lastly, I could add among those good works, for those of us that are elders, it's shepherding the flock of God, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not lording it over those allotted to our charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. That's chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. These are our excellent behaviors. These are our good works. Just an example. The substance of our witness, again, living Christ, it has to do with affections. John Owen, fill your affections with the cross of Christ that there may be no room for sin. 
John Calvin and his institutes, which I'm reading through this year. He said this, For the Christian life is a doctrine not of the tongue, but of life. It is not apprehended by the understanding and memory alone, as other disciplines are, but it is received only when it possesses the whole soul and finds a seat and resting place in the inmost affection of the heart. I'm in the midst of reading Calvin's Institutes, and I'm right in the section on living the Christian life. It is gold. Calvin was no was no pickled predestinarian. Calvin had a vibrant passion for the things of Christ, and that needs to show in our lives. It needs to show in our preaching, our teaching. Well, turn to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to look here at some very important verses that ought to make us very excited. No, this is the gospel. This is the word of God. It needs to energize us. It needs to excite us. And we need to ask when it doesn't, what is wrong with my heart? I ask that of myself all the time. The scope of our witness is the world. The slander of our witness, false accusation. The substance of our witness, living Christ. And then there is the splendor of our witness eschatological salvation. The splendor of our witness, eschatological salvation. Note how all this comes together. I've been neglecting it. Some of you Greek students have been wondering why. We have what's called a henna clause, purpose, result. Again, verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the unbelievers. Here's the henna. So that, well, where's, you see the henna and you expect a subjunctive, right? Okay, where's the subjunctive? Well, it's toward the end of the verse. It's it's doxadzo, glorify. So keep your behavior excellent so that in whatever they accuse you as evildoers, they may see your good works. And glorify, purpose, result. You can choose there's a fine line between them. I'm not sure if this is a purpose or result. Maybe they're not mutually exclusive. That these critics will glorify God in the day of visitation. No doubt Peter's hearkening back to the words of Jesus, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Here, that they may see your good works and glorify God in the day of visitation. An Old Testament concept that refers to either blessing or judgment. Blessing for believers, judgment for unbelievers. I take this to encompass the second coming of Christ, the day of visitation. Listen, as a result of our witness, our lives, our affections, our abstaining from fleshly lusts that would disqualify us from ministry, as a result of our witness, there will be those in darkness who will see God's excellence proclaimed, verse 9, and come to glorify him as believers. In other words, I think this is salvific. There's circularity here. Note how it works. We go from verse 12 back to verse 9. That they might proclaim the excellencies of him and called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you realize who you are, what the Bible says about you, what you're to be do, what you're to do, and how you're to live your life radiating the excellencies of God, proclaiming his excellencies... And some 
who formerly called you evildoers because you don't, you don't walk according to their rules, some are going to come to saving faith in Christ, goes back to, again, what we see in verse 9. They become part of those who proclaim the excellencies of God. This is reproduction. This is what happens throughout history as the church marches forward. Our witness is to radiate God's excellence in a dark world. Yes, and suffering sometimes is an integral part of our witness. How do we face suffering? How do we endure suffering? For us, suffering in this life is unavoidable. I think that's part of what it means that we fill up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions, Colossians 1.24. Of course, not that anything was lacking as to the redemptive suffering of Christ. That's not what it means. This is our, as believers, as leaders, embracing suffering and slander, even as Jesus did in his earthly ministry, because we are his representatives. We are doing what Christ, who's not on earth physically, what he can't do, we are doing as his representatives. We are filling up as Joseph Tan put it, I am an extension of Jesus Christ. When I was beaten in Romania, he suffered in my body. It is not my suffering. I only had the honor to share his sufferings. Our lives, our sufferings, our testimony to the love of Christ in a world of darkness. We leaders have to set the example in that regard. And it seems to me, this has been written about, it's been talked about, that going into leadership, particularly as an elder in the local church, is to set yourself in a position where you say, Lord, if you're going to bring suffering into my life, so be it. It seems to me that God gives an extraordinary amount of suffering to, the, to leaders. Spurgeon talked about that. It's a way in which we identify with Christ as a suffering servant is in our sufferings. And so Spurgeon said, may not severe discipline fall to the lot of some to qualify them for their office of under shepherds? We cannot speak with consoling authority to an experience which we have never known. The suffering know those who have themselves suffered and their smell is as the smell of a field which the Lord hath blessed. The word to the weary is not learned except by an ear which has bled while the awl has been fastened or has fastened it to the doorpost. The complete pastor's life will be an epitome of the lives of his people, and they will turn to his preaching, as men do to David's psalms, to see themselves and their sorrows as in a mirror. Their needs will be the reason for his griefs. As to the Lord himself, perfect equipment for his work came only through suffering. So it must be for those who are called to follow him in binding up the brokenhearted and loosing the prisoners. Souls still remain in our churches to whose deep and dark experience we shall never be able to minister till we also have been plunged in the abyss where all Jehovah's waves roll over our heads. If this be the fact, and we are sure it is, then may we heartily welcome anything which will make us fitter channels of blessing 
And then alluding to 2 Timothy 2.10, for the elect's sake, it shall be joy to endure all things. Some way that I cannot totally comprehend yet, I have been filling up the sufferings of Christ even as I've suffered the loss of my dear daughter at age 14. The apple of my eye, my little girl. I recently read an account about a suffering saint who exemplified that last point, the splendor of our witness, the eschatological salvation of others. Something Peter's readers would soon face, danger to their lives, being beaten, being put to death. And this is an account from Sergei Kordakov's autobiography, The Persecutor. In that work, he tells how he was commissioned by the Russian secret police to raid prayer gatherings and persecute believers and do so with extraordinary brutality. However, the afflictions of one believer changed his life. And so he writes, as an eyewitness, he says, I saw Viktor Matveyev reach and grab for a young girl, Natasha Zadanova, who was trying to escape to another room. She was a beautiful young girl. What a waste to be a believer, Sergei thought. Victor caught her, picked her above his head, held her high in the air for a second. She was pleading, don't, please don't, dear God, help us. Victor threw her so hard she hit the wall at the same height she was thrown, then dropped to the floor, semi-conscious, semi-conscious moaning. Victor turned and laughed and exclaimed, I bet the idea of God went flying out of her head. On a later raid, Sergei was shocked to see this young girl, Natasha, again. I quickly surveyed the room, and I saw a sight I couldn't believe. There she was, the same girl. It couldn't be, but it was. Only three nights before, she had been at the other meeting and had been viciously thrown across the room. It was the first time I really got a good look at her. She was more beautiful than I'd first remembered, a very beautiful girl with long, flowing blonde hair, large blue eyes, and smooth skin. One of the most naturally beautiful girls I've ever seen. I picked her up and flung her on a table face down. Two of us stripped her clothes off. One of my men held her down, and I began to beat her again and again. My hands began to sting under the blows. Her skin started to blister. I continued to beat her until pieces of bloody flesh came off in my hand. She moaned but fought desperately not to cry. To suppress her cries, she bit her lower lip until it was bitten through and blood ran down her chin. At last, she gave in and began to sob. When I was so exhausted, I couldn't raise my arm for one more blow, and her backside was a mass of raw flesh. I pushed her off the table, and she collapsed on the floor. Well, to Sergei's shock, he later encountered her again at another prayer meeting. But this time, something was different. There she was again, Natasha Zaranova. Several of the guys sought her, too. Alex Guliev moved toward Natasha, hatred filling his face, his club raised above his head. Then something I never expected to see suddenly happened. Without warning, Victor jumped between Natasha and Alex, facing Alex head on. Get out of my way, Alex shouted angrily. Victor's feet didn't move. He raised his club and said menacingly, Alex, I'm telling you, don't touch her. No one touches her. 
I listened in amazement. Incredibly, one of my most brutal men was protecting one of the believers. Get back, he shouted to Alex. Get back or I'll let you have it. He shielded Natasha, who was cowering on the floor. Angered, Alex shouted, you want her for yourself, don't you? No, Victor shouted back. She has something we don't have. Nobody touches her, nobody. Sergei wrote, for one of the first times in my life, I was deeply moved. Natasha did have something. She had been beaten horribly. She had been warned and threatened. She had gone through unbelievable suffering. But here she was again. Even Victor had been moved and recognized it. She had something we didn't have. I wanted to run after her and ask, what is it? I wanted to talk to her, but she was gone. This heroic Christian girl who had suffered so much at our hands somehow touched and troubled me very much. But what happened to Sergei? The Lord opened his heart to the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. And as he later reflected on Natasha, whom he never saw again, he wrote, And finally to Natasha, whom I beat terribly, and was willing to be beaten a third time for her faith, I want to say, Natasha, largely because of you, my life has now changed, and I am a fellow believer in Christ with you. I have a new life before me. God has given me. I hope hope you can forgive me as he has. Thank you, Natasha, wherever you are. I will never, never forget you. What a stark, if not extreme, example of the splendor of our witness and the eschatological salvation of others, that they may see your good works and glorify God in the day of visitation. Here's a young girl that was willing to endure extreme beating, perhaps her life, to proclaim the excellency of him who called her out of darkness into light. Can we not guard our hearts, stoke our affections, that our lives will demonstrate that glory? I want to give you just a few closing points, and I want to speak to my fellow church leaders at this point exclusively. And I preach to myself, I speak to myself. These are things we know, these are things we've heard. But as was pointed out to us earlier, we need to be reminded. I think Reed called it the noetic effect of the fall on our minds. We need to hear these things over and over again. So I'm going to say, as Peter did, number one, guard your behavior. Guard your behavior. Guard your behavior. Others are not only listening to what we say as we proclaim Christ, They are watching what we do as we live Christ. And I'm convinced, for our own sake and for our peoples, that part of this involves us being real. Not coming off as stained glass saints that have it all together. That just need a little bit of Jesus because we're doing well. We're holy. We're godly. Yes, We are positionally, but I'm talking about in practice. No, we need to be real with our people and say, you know what? I'm simul justus et peccator. I am at once righteous and sinful. I'm not talking about disqualifying sin. You know that. But I'm talking about being real. I'm broken. 
I struggle, I hurt, I doubt, I sin. And I've found that while it makes us vulnerable to our people, I have found in being so transparent that they greatly appreciate it and it ministers to their hearts. And it doesn't set us up to be something we're not. Guard your behavior. That's outward. Verse verse 12. Well, then inwardly, verse 11, we need to beware of secret sins. Most of our sin is secret. We don't go out and publicize what sorts of sins we've dabbled in throughout the week. We need to beware of secret sins. Outward conduct is the fruit of secret behavior. What you are outwardly testifies to what you are inwardly. What are you in secret? Ask yourself that question. What do you think about? How about we come up with a machine and we play it on Sunday and we have all the elders, they strap a gizmo on their heads and it shows all of their thoughts, all of their sinful thoughts from the previous week. You want to do that? I don't. What are you thinking? What are you dwelling on? Where's your heart? Where's your mind? Psalm 90, verse 8, you have placed our iniquities, God, before you, God, our secret sins in the light of your presence. God knows. God knows those thoughts. We cannot act as if he doesn't. Secret sins not only pollute the soul, we saw that in verse 11, they also often become Public sins. They become violations of our outward behavior, verse 12. Did you hear that? Secret sins not only pollute the soul, they often become public sins. It's hard to keep them secret. The Puritan Obadiah Sedgwick said this, Secret sins will become public if they are not cleansed. It is with the soul as it is with the body, wherein diseases are first bred and then manifested. And if you suppress them not in their root, you shall shortly see them break out in the fruit. It is like fire that catches the inside of the house first, and there, if you do not suppress it, makes a way to get to the outside. End quote. Guard your behavior, deal with secret sin. Number three, we need to feed our souls, not merely the intellect. I fail so often at this. I love to learn. I have an intellectual curiosity. I want to master subjects. I want to know a lot about a lot of different things, especially as it relates to theology and philosophy and the Bible. But sometimes in feeding the brain, I neglect the heart. Last year at this time, I went through a deep spiritual depression, and I I preached on that. And part of that spiritual depression, as I reflected on how I was feeling, what were the reasons, and really coming face-to-face before my God, part of it was the toleration of secret sin. Part of it was not feeding my soul. I was feeding my intellect but I wasn't feeding my soul. Carve time. Tony, Tony, 
Carve time from your busy schedule and feed your soul. And don't act like studying theology, studying philosophy is the end all to your spiritual nourishment. I I can divorce the two. Maybe you can marry them. Maybe you can read a lot of systematic theology, study a lot of things that are intellectual and feed your soul. You can make that transition. I'm not so good at it. I need to listen to good Christian music. I love Keith Green. I know he was an Armenian. Well, he, he was, not anymore. But I, I, Keith Green ministers to me in ways that no other Christian artist ever has. Um, I spent a lot of time listening to music, weeping before God. I need to get back to that. I've grown kind of stale in a year. I've grown kind of stale. We need to feed our souls, not merely our intellects. Number four, our greatest enemy may be ourselves. You ever think of that? Your greatest enemy as a leader is yourself, and by that I mean pride. Peter addresses that, doesn't he? Chapter 5, verse 6. I minister in a small church with a rather obscure ministry. I struggle with envy and resentment towards the big box churches. I've always, from the time I first became a Christian in the 1980s, I've always ministered in smaller churches. And then when I became a leader, first a deacon and later an elder, I've seen so many people come into the church and say, well, you know, we love the preaching, we love the people, but you've heard that, haven't you? But our kids, our kids want to be in a bigger church. And they've got a great youth group over at Plastic Church. So we're going to Plastic Church. And I became bitter. It's only been more recently that I've been able to kind of get past that and just be thankful for what I have. Because a lot of that bitterness was my own pride, thinking that I deserve better. God, you have called me to be a, an able exegete. You've given me preaching gifts. I have pastoral gifts. And why do I have less than 100 people in my church? When Plastic Church down the road has 2,000. And it may not even be Plastic Church. It may be a good church. Be content with what you have. Guard that number one enemy, pride. So I have two verses pasted on my computer monitor in my office. One of them is Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Not to you, Tony. Don't be a glory stealer of God. Be a mirror. Reflect God's glory off of yourself and to other people. And then Proverbs 27, verse 2 is so helpful. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. How many of us have had somebody in our church, they go to a conference and they say, oh, the preaching was just wonderful. And it's almost like you feel like they're saying, if only I could sit under that kind of preaching week in and week out. And then you're defended to defend yourself. Well, you know, there's some pretty weighty people who have said that I'm quite gifted. Yeah, I stopped doing that. I say, well, praise the Lord. Don't be, don't be proud, Tony. Be thankful for what God has given you. Not only the gifts, but the people and the ministry that you have. Let another praise you, not your own mouth. John Calvin, 
You will never attain true gentleness except by one path, a heart imbued with lowliness. Jonathan Edwards called pride the the worst viper that is in the heart and the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. He ranked pride as the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts. And then he once wrote of himself, what a foolish, silly, miserable, blind, deceived, poor worm and I when pride works. He warned against spiritual pride, which he viewed as the greatest cause to the premature ending of the Great Awakening. I don't always really believe that to be the greatest is to be the least. Because I think in my heart that, man, if I had 500 people, if I had 1,000 people, I'd probably get invited to speak in places. I could probably write books. Tony, you are an idiot. Do we really really believe that to be great in God's eyes is to be the least? Do we, do you really believe that? Lastly, be accountable. Be accountable. I am so thankful that I have a couple of men in my life that I can go to and I can share things, struggles that I can't tell my wife about, that I can't tell just anyone about. I have safe people, including other elders in my church. One dear brother that's right here that I can meet with, and I can say, I'm really struggling with this temptation. I'm really struggling with these sinful thoughts. Pray for me. Dear Reed Ferguson, who, my big, I call him my big brother, who was there, Larry was there, when we went through the tragedies that we went through, When I was just a total mess, I mean a total mess. Like, just a short way from insanity, self-harm. Reed was there. Larry was there. You've got to have, guys, you've got to have somebody in your life, at least one person that you can go to, that you feel safe with that's going to understand because they struggle with some of the same things. I find that so freeing. Reed, am I an idiot or what? Well, you are an idiot, but as far as what you're struggling with, no, I struggle with the same things. Here's what we need to do. Be accountable. These are some of the ways we can live the light of Christ in a dark, hostile world. Keep your behavior excellent among the unbelievers so that whatever they accuse you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God in the day of visitation. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I don't like speaking in unfamiliar places, but I'm honored. I'm honored to do that among brothers Brothers with whom I walk arm in arm against the world of flesh, forces of hell. We thank you, Lord, for this small conference that in so many ways 
outstrips by leaps and bounds its smallness because you outstrip by leaps and bounds our smallness. Oh, Lord, help us to take these truths, especially those of us in ministry, help us to take these truths and live these truths that we've heard from Kenny and from Reed and from Alan and those that we've been able to glean, especially out of verse 12. Oh, Lord, not to us, not to us give the glory, but to you alone because of your goodness, your loving kindness. We thank you for that loving kindness that was poured out in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.